Hey, Joanne. Welcome to the currently titled Movie Moolah podcast. Um, we're going to talk a bit about distribution, your time in film, and just in general talk about uh, what it is to make a film. Very similar to what we both do on Clubhouse. So um, just more you and I talking as opposed to taking questions. So welcome, Joanne. For those of you who don't know Joanne, um, which you should, uh, why, Joanne, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself and say what you do? Um, I think I'm going to take this earring off because I think it's clicking on the mic. Um, so I am a film producer, business consultant, business coach, and I help filmmakers around everything to do with money and business. And sometimes that is not something that filmmakers necessarily identify with. You know, they're much more interested in all of the creative. You know, we could talk about screenwriting all day. Or we could talk about directing all day. But when it comes to producing and actually making money, it's not always at the top of filmmakers' lists. Um, if filmmakers are really, really, really intent on making films it gets to be the top of their list after their first one two or three films um and uh, they realize how important it is how important it is to be able to tap into a market to be able to speak to an audience um but it isn't always the, the first thing on their mind so i i like to say that i talk about and teach everything filmmakers don't want to know <laughs> you're totally right um i frame it slightly differently and that i teach what film school doesn't but um the but both are very accurate statements and mm -hmm. um it's to the point that i've even just this week uh i saw a filmmaker getting our outwardly hostile on facebook on people thinking films needed to make money Oh, that's right. And that's right. It was, it was around an article in Filmmaker Magazine, which uh, peaked behind the veil. Uh, we just uh, just dropped this week, so yeah, it's April. We're recording this for June. Welcome to podcasts. Yes, um, <laughs> one of my clients, even uh, even though she's been very well trained now, and she's uh, finishing a, her first feature documentary. Um, but she still says, Joanne, why do I have to make money? Why do I have to make money? I said, do you want to make more films? Oh, yes, she says. Oh, yes. <laughs> you want to keep making movies? Yeah, you, you, you I mean, yeah, it's the European tax incentive system takes a lot of that pressure off. But if you're mm -hmm. an American filmmaker, you got to yeah. make money. It's just how it is. It's, yeah. Yeah. Years ago, I, I've worked with the Brazilian Film Festival in Miami for 26 years now that they've been in existence. And I used to run their education program and we would put together all these panels and I would bring in all the Americans and they would bring in all the Brazilians and we had simultaneous translation. It was awesome. And one time I had uh, Gil and Kevin Chinoy and um, they were on a panel and some of the, somebody in the audience raised their hand and the Brazilians and they said, you know, well, we, we only get, um, you know, 
X hundred thousands of dollars from the Brazilian government to make our movies, you know, um, how are we supposed to really uh, get them into the American market? And Gil and Kevin just sort of went, you, what did you say? <laughs> well, we, we, we only get so many hundred thousand dollars. And they said, you're getting what? <laughs> <laughs> and and the Brazilians in the audience, because this happens, or I'm half Trinidadian, but but so people who live in the second and the third worlds assume that Americans all have loads of money. And so these two guys, these two producers who probably didn't have a pot to piss in, um, oops. <laughs> it's you and yeah. you bring it. It was you me. It's always, it's all, yeah, no. Look, you it, bring it out in me. <laughs> um, so anyway, they, they probably had nothing, you know. And um, and these guys, these, these Brazilians are talking about, you know, what to do when they only have a few hundred thousand dollars to make a movie. And they, they just couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. They were completely stumped. They were supposed to be there. They're supposed to be the American producers who know all about the money. And they were just like, what? We're just in the wrong country. Yeah. I mean, so just because uh, we got into a little thing there. Right before we started recording, I asked Joanne to avoid swearing to appease Lord Go uh, Lord YouTube, I suppose, and Lord Google. But uh, I'm not even sure piss would come up on that. So I honestly don't know. But um, I really... Don't say that expression. <laughs> it's it's your a... fault. It's my fault. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I normally have a mouth like a fucking sailor because I have high school spirit, yo. And I grew up in a steamboat and our mascot was the sailors. This is true facts. Um, but the, um, anyway, uh, yeah, if I ever get invited back to Steamboat to speak now, they're going to pull that exact clip. Um, but the, uh, anyway, so... How is, what do you think of the current film market for independent filmmakers? Because I know you've helped 21. I don't know your number anymore. It, uh, right now I have, uh, my clients have 16 mm -hmm. features in distribution. Mm -hmm. um, oddly enough, I was just talking to one of my clients about one of the first films that ever got into distribution. And, um, and then a series, and then I'm waiting to hear, I'm going to find out tomorrow about another series I'm facilitating the sale of. Um, so one of the, the things that I really bring to the table is being able to have a filmmaker see from the time they start writing their script, where are we going to end up? That's that's distribution. And this is another of um, where filmmakers are not really thinking that way. You know, they have to be brought along to the idea that the end goal is distribution. Mm -hmm. So I still mostly hear filmmakers say the end goal is getting into a festival. Yeah. And, right. But but for filmmakers, that's, that's the thing. They think, oh, I'm going to get into a festival. And um, I remember recently I had very... All my clients are super smart and I had this couple working together and they 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 created their pitch deck and they went to speak to their first investor and they said the investor yelled at us and I said what happened you know because I know we've worked on the pitch deck it was great talked about distribution where we were going to get distribution or da, da, da. and apparently they threw in um 
we're going to get the film into festivals um, as a way of getting distribution, which is not what we had discussed. And the investor actually yelled at them and said, no, if you are going to try and get your film into distribution via festivals, this is not going to work. And they were like, oops. Yeah, I mean, so we all know it can work. Mm -hmm. That's not, nobody's debating that. Mm -hmm. But um, it tends not to. And frankly, you're more like the only way it tends to work is if you get into one of like the top five, top 10, maybe top 20 film festivals and anything beyond that. Anybody who's trawling those kind of lower tier film festivals is going to be a. It's going to be more of the predatory, the predatory shitbags is what I <laughs> tend to call them because we've already broken that. So we're moving right on to it. Um authenticity baby um the so it just tends to be the people who if you're lucky you'll get an mg but you probably won't and you're unlikely to get anything beyond that uh it was that's where they are in festivals now there are a couple exceptions obviously the top 10 that changes the game entirely but frankly the only way you're going to get into the top 10 is if you have somebody on the inside poking at them and yeah. i'm it's just the nature of the game in fact the higher level films that i'm working on part of it is around a festival strategy mm, it's not mm. it's not depend it does it's not it's, it's not dependent you want to say dependent, dependent on festivals, that's, what, that's yeah. the important word yeah it's not dependent because being dependent is a problem and yeah. so i i just have to, i feel as though i have to separate this idea for filmmakers there's festivals over here there's distribution over here they don't necessarily connect they, they might yeah they can they amplify can. Mm -hmm. and festivals are really best thought of as more of a marketing tool than a distribution tool yes yes it's, um and frankly you should be working with a distributor on your festivals if unless you're self-distributing in which case you should really be careful when you do your distribution launch and how it relates to festivals because you should be trying to get your distribution launch on one of your later bigger festivals, because then you can really push VOD on it. And mm -hmm. the first week for VOD matters so incredibly much for getting picked up in their algorithms. It's just and, where it is. And, you know, I, I know this just from working with my clients, but they think when they hear me talk about this, what they hear is, oh, Joanne says there's something bad about festivals. That is not what I said. But they think that there's some conflict between festivals and distributors. So they think, oh, if I'm going to get distribution, that means then I can't be in festivals. And that's not true at all, you know, because I keep saying to them, you know, there's no distributor that's ever going to complain because your film got into a festival. It's just marketing. That's just great marketing for your film. Uh, I have a client who just got into two festivals, you know, small festivals, but one best feature at both. Awesome. You know, it's just good marketing and yeah. not marketing you paid for. No, I mean, it's so there is one exception to this rule that I should bring up, um, uh -huh. which is it is possible to oversaturate your film you know, on the festival oh, yeah? scene. 
Uh-huh. You have to be doing like 20, 30, 40 festivals uh-huh. to, to work. Uh-huh. I'd say normally uh-huh. limited it to about 10 and you're you're fine. Mm. It's mm. just um especially in one territory for 10. Like if you're a US right. filmmaker, limit it to 10 in the US. If others outside of the US want to like take your Italian or your UK or any of those levels of premieres, yeah, that's probably fine. Um, but it, just make sure your sales agent or your distributor, if they're not the same person or the same entity, um, just make sure that they're up to date on what's going on with it because they're going to find ways to use it in their sales. Give Make your sales agent's job easy and they'll do a hell of a lot more for you. Even stuff that you don't expect, basically. Because it's a... The business is kind of... You have really two models you can follow as a distributor. Um, one is the, I call it the schlock gunning model, which is just throw everything in a wall and see what sticks, release 50 plus films a year oh. um, and do that. Um, and then the other model is the higher tier distribution, which gets... Um, which means you basically spend up to a month on each independent on each individual film, mm. really giving it tons of attention. But the problem with that model is if that film doesn't make a couple hundred thousand dollars, like out the gate, it's almost impossible to keep running your business on that. Mm. And mm. it's mm. just a like when I was running Mutiny, uh, Mutiny was the uh, distribution company that I just sold to Bayview recently. Um, when I was running that, the goal was to get to 50 a year with one theatrical, well, with uh, anywhere between seven and eight theatricals a year. And maybe eventually one per month, it would have taken time to scale that to do it properly. The reason we did that is to hedge our bets and right. get the films that we and allow us to take bigger risks on films. Frankly, we could take like one of our biggest earners nobody expected to do anywhere close to as well as it did um a major a major 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 outlet called it pure drivel and then we made like two to three times the entire license that that outlet paid in three days on tubi oh wow three days it was top three in the country then so it was yeah it's a big deal it's um, the the thing the thing i learned from watching you running mutiny was distribution is hard it's a lot harder than you think it is it is hard hard. i like to think i'm pretty good at my job and i'm a smart guy i mean my wife may disagree i'm not sure um the uh (laughs) let's call her in (laughs) (laughs) but um the I am, there were, it was hard in different ways than I expected. Like a big thing on that was I did not expect to spend anywhere near as much time of my time around insurance as I did. And Mm. that's another thing. And also just when everybody's getting burned out, tempers run high and it's really just hard to keep going on that. And we were very ethical in that we paid our filmmakers every cent they were owed but sometimes they weren't owed that many cents. Mm-hmm. And it's just unfortunate 
that even when we tried our best, even before we were like uh, amping up to do 50 a year, which was really towards when we sold the film or sold the company rather, um, we we would put tons of attention into certain things and sometimes we'd get bupkis back it's just like we'd get huge press placement we'd spend dozens of personnel hours on it and or more in some cases like hundreds in some cases then we would get like a few thousand dollars back and it's you can't run a business like that you just can't and unfortunately there's a reason it's called show business unless you're in europe in which case you've got lots of tax incentives and it makes your job a lot easier (laughs) but yeah that's not happening to americans and i think that filmmakers i mean one of the things that i do a lot of work with my clients on is I mean, partly around mindset, because we do a lot of fundraising and mm-hmm. fundraising can be very demanding on your like spiritual, emotional self, but also just to try to um, have filmmakers not have expectations that are just so high that they can never be met. And so one of my goals for my clients is that when they deliver a film to the distributor, that they're not in debt to anybody mm-hmm. else or to themselves. And that sounds like a pretty low bar, except that there have been filmmakers who've run up all their credit cards, mortgaged their houses, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're not doing any of that. We we raise the money and we don't raise as much as we want to raise. And that's what we're spending. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like, oh, we're going to try and raise this amount of money and we didn't get it. So we're going to borrow the rest. None of my clients are doing that. Mm-hmm. And hold, so. Hold on. Uh, your video. Stopped. Oh, we frozen. Oh yeah. You okay. are frozen. Sorry. I'm pausing the recording. And I think we're back. <laughs> we're back. Okay. So, so I, I feel as though. I just started saying this in the last few months that that I'm really proud of the fact that my clients are not in debt when they deliver the film to the distributor, uh, because I think it doesn't sound very sexy. But I, it's it's very important to me that it's a piece of creating a sustainable filmmaking career. Mm-hmm. That that if you're if you make sure from the get go that you're not planning on going into debt you know, using up all your savings, all those things that filmmakers do, then I think that it can be less stressful. You know, recently I met these two young ladies from India and they had made a very significant message documentary about violence against women in India. And they had spent $50,000 of their own money. They had scraped and saved and borrowed. and, And we got on a Zoom and, you know, they were in their mid-20s, and they just looked drawn and haggard from the stress of, and this is not the only time, especially with documentary filmmakers, um, that I've seen this, but just the the fear, the terror, as the penny is dropping that they are not going to be making $50,000 back on that movie. 
Mm-hmm. That's just, it's, I advised a client in the very recent past. And when I say I advised, I don't mean in any legal sense because not a lawyer, not going to be a lawyer. Sorry, mom. Um, the, uh, basically there was a strange sort of financial thing going on and it, the last play that was really available to us required an odd risk. And exactly what I told him was, look, if you can afford to lose it, you should consider it. If this will hurt you significantly for more than a year, if nothing comes back to you, don't do it. That's it. Just don't do it. That that's where we are. It's the risk. It's a risk tolerance thing, and mm. the there's always going to be some level of risk in the in in any business in this business in particular, but you have to make sure that you're not taking on so much debt and so much risk that it'll ruin your life if things don't go your way because unfortunately odds are they won't um every once in a while things explode in an insanely good way but most of the time they don't and you have to play the numbers and understand what's a smart risk and what isn't and that's like pretty much everybody in the distribution game that i know um, and the sales game has either just taken pains to keep their overhead, their expenses extraordinarily low. Pretty much everybody works out of home in this business. Um, there are exceptions, but not many. Um, and then the we pretty much all have side incomes as well. Like among sales agents, landlording is a really common side income. Um, it's the thing about this business is when we get something that hits extremely well, we get a big fat paycheck. And then we have to make it last for six to nine months. Basically. <laughs> or or, or years. <laughs> it can. And it's significantly more severe for filmmakers on that than it is for distributors. So basically you have to find ways to hedge your bets and have side incomes that ideally are not directly from film. The biggest exception to that would be if you can get a series going as a producer, if you can get a series going as an executive producer or producer showrunner or whatever you term you want to use for that, then it's pretty stable income for a pretty long time. But yeah, it's... although I do see what I see is that like I have this fabulous client. She's making a documentary about missing and murdered Indigenous women, but she's um, an associate producer for you know big networks. She never has five minutes for herself, so the yeah. film just gets shelved and you know put off, put off, put off. She got to uh, won a grant for a hundred thousand dollars towards the film, but she's working all the time. And that is a that's a real trap for for people who are working in the industry, mm -hmm. um, working these you know, crazy hours, seven day weeks, you know, all, all of that thing that's considered normal in in the industry. It's not normal at all, but it's it's done all the time. Mm -hmm. 
No, I have, I... I, I, have, I have my own book I could write about my experience working in reality television. I think I've told you there was like this 30 page contract and every page was you're not covered for this. You're not covered for that. You're not covered for this. You're not covered for that. And the last page, it said, and if there's anything that we haven't mentioned or haven't thought of, you're not covered for that either. That's basically what, and I saw the contract and I just burst out laughing, but it was funny for me. You know, I was mm -hmm. working on one series. I had no intention of making that my career, but all of my coworkers, they went from one reality series to another signing contracts like that, being paid a pittance, <sighs> you know, it was just, yeah, that, that's a book I could write. <laughs> that is that is a good book and actually we haven't talked about that i didn't even know you had time in reality there so that's a oh, i'd yeah, love yeah, to yeah, talk yeah. more about that yeah the... wow i worked on a show called addicted and it was about um as a bay area interventionist who mm -hmm. specialized in working uh, instead of just with the addict with the whole family and um so uh, a, f a friend of mine was the showrunner and mm -hmm. I got hired onto that and ended up um, working in casting, which in that series is basically finding alcoholics and addicts who are so close to death that they're willing to come and be on a show. It was, it was, a, it was an extraordinary experience, absolutely extraordinary. And um, and then I also worked with the treatment centers who agreed to be involved in the show and take the addict through through treatment. And and actually, I have to say one thing about the show: it was a six episode the first uh, was a six episode series, and all of those addicts stayed clean and sober as long as I was following for two or three years after the show. So you know, it really worked pretty darn well. <laughs> that but that, yeah yeah but the um but the working conditions and the pay and everything were just to me um shameful it's shameful that happens a lot frankly like i mean i haven't had a real job in <laughs> i don't know if i should say the number of years at this point i think it me me. was a real job I would call mutiny a real job. <laughs> fair, fair point. I more meant um, like I haven't had a job that I didn't start create for myself is more mm -hmm. what I mean, because mm -hmm. I think the um, I think honestly, being a producer's rep is also a real job with real uh, consequences and real yeah. skills that are necessary for it. Um, but the. But I haven't had like, I think the last quote-unquote real job I had was like just out of college and I was working uh in retail because I had already worked in insurance and I just didn't want to do it again so I took a shitty retail job just for something um and that company was called I think it's pronounced sex c-e-x <laughs> It's not, and see, now if we weren't demonetized, we definitely are now. Um, but the, uh, yeah, it's it was a great little home, uh, like, used electronics store, and it was a decent job, but I got offered the opportunity to uh, produce events 
for somebody else and i'm like oh okay yeah that's good i have no idea where i was going with this i completely lost that train job about so, not having a job yeah i still I, I got back that far i don't remember what the lead-in from that was but oh well um well i think i think uh partly you know what you're mm -hmm. referring to is that there's a there's a level of entrepreneurialism about the about being a filmmaker being mm -hmm. a distributor being a producer's rep and i think that that level of entrepreneurialism is not necessarily what filmmakers have have really imagined is going to be the way that it is but the mm -hmm. fact is every feature film or certainly every feature film that gets distribution mm -hmm. has its own llc so if, yes if it doesn't it is very <laughs> foolish um yes. i have told that directly to clients so yes. um the yeah it's uh yeah and so I think as that, long as you're making a feature film you're an entrepreneur it's true you are it's like actually almost like entrepreneur on hard mode um but the uh just because you have to almost start from scratch every single time not not every exactly. time you can you you have there's a lot of reusable assets like your relationships and those sorts of things that make it easier after each one but if you're not a schmuck if well i mean <laughs> that's i mean i i thought that we were talking about the industry not the uh you know entire industry um but uh no so... filmmakers i well my clients are all lovely all my mm -hmm. clients are lovely i uh, people schmucks don't come to me <laughs> i have to say but um but the another part about the sustainability part of having a sustainable career mm -hmm. is about building relationships and working with people and the same people and finding out who you can work with and then keep working with them that's a that's a really great way to have your career be sustainable yeah and i think i think this is where i was going with the retail thing originally it's um i have worked jobs where i made very very little money at for a bit um while i was building something else or jobs that i basically had to subsidize to make uh like i i i, I delivered doordash for a little bit while i was real while i was building my representation agency and it's a um it's it's one thing if you choose that life for yourself it is one thing if you're okay while you're doing that, while you're building whatever you're building. It's another thing if you're a, uh, to reuse a phrase, um, completely predatory shit basket, and you uh, want to uh, put a really bad contract on somebody that they basically have no choice but to take because they're just that down. And it's a, I understand how you, how, why we have to have so much liability stuff in these contracts and so much indemnification. I really do get it. I've, I get it better than most people really, but there's also a point where it is, there is some assumption of risk that you have to take as a business person. And uh, sorry, that, that got really intellectual jargony really fast there. <laughs> Just a uh, predatory shit basket jargon. <laughs> But um, predatory shit basket is the technical term for yes, 
Yes, it is. <laughs> I I would even confirm that with my lawyer, and they, they might agree. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't agree at all. But they would sarcastically agree. That's why I like my lawyer. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, um, and I I don't mean to laugh at the fact that there are predators in the film industry, but um, because there really are, and uh, uh, but there are also ways of making sure that you're protected from that. I have two clients who went to a company that I can't name, but mm -hmm. um, one of them went to that company after they had worked with me. And by that time they had a fabulous entertainment lawyer and uh, they ended up paying a fee to this company, but mm, that was about it. And they, they liked what they did. The other client had gone to that company before working with me and we discovered that he had paid them $10,000. They had promised to package the film and raise money. Uh, they hadn't raised any money, hadn't brought on any name talent. He had, but they hadn't mm -hmm. done any. And um, and then I, I got my uh, sales agent involved uh, who called them up. And it turned out that he had signed a contract that um, they were going to get to be distributing his film. And if he wanted out, he had to pay them $25,000 to get out of the contract. So he'd already paid them $10,000 to package and finance the film that they did nothing, absolutely mm -hmm. nothing. He raised money himself, got his own cast. He was going to make the film and then he was going to be locked in to getting distribution with these people who had done nothing for him. And if he didn't go with them, he was going to have to pay them $25,000 to get out of it. See, it, that's it, predatory. That's predatory. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I so it's a difficult balancing act. Um, as a producer's rep, we, um, you know, we still have bills. We still have to eat. We still have rent, mortgages, whatever that we have to cover. So, um, if unless, so if it's not a strict brokering task we're basically forced to take some money up front because we still need to. And it's, I'm, I'm sounding too apologetic for this. We yeah. deserve to be paid for what we do. And the biggest thing is if you're just t taking a gigantic retainer and then not doing anything, that's you're right. It's entirely predatory. And yep. it is a, uh, the only reason I'm not saying the other part is I don't want to get, if I have, if by some miracle I haven't been demonetized on this, I I'd like to keep <laughs> it that way. But um, I am a. So yeah, speaking of money, but the way I get around that as a rep is when I'm doing earlier stage stuff that I just can't do on brokerage alone, and it mm. it is that I charge to generate and punch up documents more than anything and get you actually ready to talk to investors as part of that. The actual tangible delivery you get out of it is frankly a kick-ass deck, a um, kick-ass business plan, maybe not, but uh, because that's kind of my highest end service at that stage, but like a kick-ass pro forma financial statement set and all of these sorts of things that will actually be something you can take to an investor and defend the methodology of basically, so that there's actually something there at the end. And unfortunately, the uh, 
there are others who won't even do that level of stuff. Some do, some don't. I think I know who you're talking about, but I too will not say the name because I no, don't want don't my say the name, but you know who they are. Yes, but you yes, can ask yes. any of us um, offline um, who that company is. Um, they're pretty well known, but mm -hmm. um, it's just that. I, I mean, I have no problem with people charging money if they're going to mm -hmm. fulfill on, you know, what they're promising mm -hmm. to do, but to, to take money, not do the work. In fact, when uh, the, the sales agent called them, they told him that um, they were never going to package that, that person's film because he wanted to direct. Then you shouldn't have taken the gig. So you shouldn't have taken the gig. Absolutely. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I just, oh, it just makes me so angry. And um, I just can't believe, you know, I, when I decided to uh, start my business working with filmmakers, it was because I was telling somebody this the other day, because filmmakers are my favorite people. Mm -hmm. So how could I, how could I set about, you know, cheating filmmakers? It just wouldn't make any sense. So I don't understand how these people can be doing that, but they obviously have different, a different agenda than mm -hmm. I do. Yeah. I still, I still like filmmakers. I love what filmmakers try to do, but it's important to understand that on the other side of this, on the sales and distribution side, um, a lot of people get very fed up with filmmakers and producers very quickly. Yeah. Yep. And it just has to do with unreasonable expectations. Basically. Unreasonable expectations make yeah. people misbehave horribly. Yeah. And it's like, look, if you're calling on holidays or while your distributor is in a situation that, like, they're in the hospital for knee surgery and you're <laughs> calling them multiple times you can just words i don't want to get demonetized with right off <laughs> um but the uh yeah that's the that's the thing yeah so, no un unreasonable expectations turn people into monsters that's that's what expectations are you know mm -hmm. Um, any any relationship can be turned sour with expectations really of any kind and unreasonable expectations most of all. And filmmakers can be quite unreasonable, quite unreasonable. And it's it's a lot of it is from the the passion that they have. I, I have just written a book. It's not published yet. So, or maybe in June it will be published. But um, I've written a book and, and it, the opening chapter is about uh, the filmmakers calling and how so many people are motivated by this calling that they have to, to make films and tell stories. And, and, and that chapter is really about how your calling can get you into trouble. And that's one of the ways because mm -hmm. you're so passionate about like those lovely women in India I was talking about. They had this very important story that, that was so important to get out and they missed the fact that they had spent $50,000 without having a clue how are they going to make any of it back. Or 
making demands on people. I had a I had a client who got into a lot of trouble on set, nearly had the film shut down because of the way that he was treating cast and crew. You know, that is not something you want to have happen. And it's not because this person was a mean person. It was because he was overly demanding and had unreasonable expectations of other people in order to get his film made, you know? Um, but it was brought up short and luckily was able to find some humility in the moment and keep going and finish the film. Mm-hmm. But it can, that, that kind of passion and that kind of um, drive for a calling can really get people into trouble. The way it got me into trouble is I got sick. I was, I got burned out, sick, mm-hmm. too sick to work for seven years. That's, that's how it got me into trouble. That's not good. Um, the, no. uh, I mean, yeah, anytime, nobody gets into film because they want to make money or those who do, do so very foolishly. Um, the, and I don't think anybody would ever say that film, that a filmmaker's number one and primary concern should be to make as much money as possible, regardless of anything else. I don't think anybody's saying that. I think that where people like you and I sometimes are painted with too broad a brush or an incorrect brush is that we want you to make a sustainable career and that does involve making money so making tweaks to what you're doing um really it it can be very small tweaks that can make a gigantic difference in how much you make um it can be a necessary thing and like one of the biggest things I tell people is when they come to me with a $30 million first time director feature film. Um, if I'm being, if I'm being nice, I'll say it's a little bit big for you right now. You should probably <laughs> put it on the shelf. For oh, you're way nicer than me. Um, see, this Way is why I said nicer. if you're being, if I'm being nice, um, <laughs> the, uh, put it on the shelf, try something else and come back to it. That's, that's the nice answer. Um, if it's a, uh, if you catch me on a bad day, it would be like, there's no way in hell you can find this. Just make something smaller. I think Which, the, yeah. the last word I used in that context was insane. <laughs> We all get crazy pitches. It's just a, it's part of this business. Actually, it's, it could be the thing that keeps me going through some of the crazy, (laughs) uh, through some of the just insanely frustrating things and things that should be going easily not. Every once in a while, you just get chef's kiss, just amazing, crazy pitches. Um, (laughs) And actually, I'm going to tell this story. It's not my story. I heard it from a buyer. I'm not going to say which buyer. Because I just don't think they'd want this out there. But they are. They're oh, this is going to be good. Yeah, they're <laughs> a bit of a big deal. This buyer, really. It's a um, and this guy, because he is a guy. I'm I'm using that term correctly. Um, 
was standing at AFM and he had his green badge. And for those uninitiated, AFM is the American film market. Um, somebody wrote a book on it. Don't know who. Um, the who could that possibly be? That be? I, I, I thought I brought it up, but I didn't. <laughs> um, the uh, so um, I he was standing there it, talking to another one of his sales agent or buyer friends because it's very clicky AFM um, and this producer walked up and he's like hey you guys buy movies and the guy's just like oh this okay um, yeah I, I, I'm I'm with a distributor you like horror movies uh, yeah, yeah, we distribute horror movies. Oh, good, I've got a great one for you. Got lots of boobs in it. <laughs> Which, if I were to, to, to describe what the American film market is from a filmmaker, uh, from just a film culture perspective, it's that guy. Like, almost entirely <laughs> that guy. It's, um, and I'm sure I just got uninvited to speak again. But the, um... <laughs> through it is like so indicative of the market culture at afm and specifically the sorts of films that are bought and sold there they are all schlocky horror movies generally with lots of boobs in them especially mm. if they're in the cheaper suites but mm. the reason people make the reason people want those on the distributor side is they're really easy to sell and we make money on them and that that's it uh, most of us don't i guess it's because yeah. audiences want to see boobs shocking that um but the uh so this is taking a turn we nearly uh, we nearly got ross meyer to agree to make a movie with us one time and he just said but his his um his condition was that we found a, a larger pair of boobs than he'd ever worked with before and 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 if you've seen any ross meyer movies then that's a bit of a that's that's a task. that's a bit of a challenge <laughs> um, that is a task, yes. Um, I once met Ron Jeremy at AFM. I don't know who that is. Well, I'd tell you to Google it, but I feel like that's not good. <laughs> um, he's a... Are you familiar with the trope of the mustachioed 70s porn star? No. Oh, oh wow. yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. That are that I'm, I'm somebody's gonna fact check me, and my god, if that's what ends up in the comments, great. <laughs> um, but the uh, also definitely demonetized now, but the um, but that trope, I believe, was actually originated by Ron Jeremy. So, oh, um, he's have you seen the Boondock Saints? I don't think I have. Oh, well, I, you oh, yeah. well, we're no longer friends. Okay. No, 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 you should. <laughs> it is a good one. He's also in that movie. That's why I brought uh -huh, it up. Uh -huh, but uh -huh. um, I think I've spent a Does long time. Does he have a mustache in that movie? Yes. Uh, um, okay. And I think I, I believe he is a uh, super slimy. Uh, oh, either pimp or uh, strip club owner. I'm not entirely sure which. Wow. Or like something along those lines, and then he gets murdered in one of the tiny booths. 
Um, oh. So that's by the leads. And see, this is what we do with the movie industry. We talk about all these movies <laughs> that have these just crazy things. This is... The funny thing here is this is actually really not far from just the random hour-long conversations we have on the phone, Joanne. This is true. This is true. Yeah. And, you know, uh, speaking about funny stories about movies, I just Mm -hmm. watched the series The Offer, which is about Mm -hmm. the making of The Godfather. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why it was that I started watching it because I, I wasn't particularly interested. And Mm-hmm. Wow, that is one hell of a story about a, the making of a movie. I had mm-hmm. no idea about how the mafia were involved in the making of The Godfather and all of this crazy stuff that happened. But there's there's some good stuff in there about producing and about money and um, getting movies made. It was it was really a fun a fun series. Uh, I would highly mm-hmm. recommend it that's the offer check that i will have to check that out oh um actually what are you watching right now well i'm watching a really bad show because um a friend of mine here um one recommended it so i started watching it but what i'm gonna do this evening is i'm gonna get back on to hbo and watch succession which I, i'm a a huge huge fan of succession and mm-hmm. um i discovered it because a friend of mine is married to brian cox and so i think it was probably season one was over or something and she would mention it um on her facebook page and finally i thought you know just out of politeness to my friend i should watch one of the shows so i could say oh, i've seen episode one season one of succession mm-hmm. and it's just brilliant absolutely brilliant and after i think it was after season one i thought wait a minute is this maybe the best writing ever on television and the wire is the show that's generally called the best mm-hmm. you know writing on television so i went back i watched the first season of the wire again i've watched that i've watched the wire all the way through multiple times but um i was like okay no i still i think the wire still is the best show um but i'm hearing talk that this final season of succession might be the best ever best television ever that's that's a big claim i'm gonna have to check that out um well it's also so incredibly pertinent to our time to understand mm -hmm. some of what's happening in our world but um the writer who's british based um bases the family on the uh, trumps and the um what are they called the people who own fox murdochs the australians the murdochs yeah so it's based on the trumps and the murdochs so it's it's you know people who are at this it's not just the one percent you know it's the Mm -hmm. the one percent of the one percent you know and the media empire and the way mm-hmm. and the 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 way that they see the world is so completely off base mm-hmm. but their media empire is what is creating a universe for people mm-hmm. that's what it's all about and that's the world that we're living in that's the world we're living in it's being um you know run by fox news and um you know just 24 7 lying yeah no i mean 
I completely agree. And uh, definitely demonetize me now. But oh, yeah? the, uh, okay. I'm kidding. I was, again, sorry, just trying to pull that. Fox, 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 Fox. Fox, but Fox, the, uh, Fox. Oh, no. Fox, Fox. Uh, but the, no, I more <laughs> meant that we were criticizing them. Um, yes. But the uh, bad jokes. Anyway, um, the. Yeah, so I'm actually. I will have to watch that. I've been meaning to watch it. It's just haven't found the time. Um, but the the weird thing about working on this end of the business is that it can sometimes be really, really hard to muster the energy to watch anything good after your shift because <laughs> you've had to watch so much crap that you just and you've had to actively watch it. So you just don't have energy to watch something good. Um, the I'm watching Arcane on Netflix. Oh, what's that? Right now. It's, Arcane. Yeah, it's a League of Legends ad- adaptation show, and it's an animated show. Um, oh. it's, I I kind of wrote it off entirely originally just because i thought it was league of legends and i'm not into it it's like i think i might have played it once maybe but um i'm not that into it but what really got me to change my mind are two things one um a friend and client of mine uh stimson i'm just gonna you'll know if you google uh who i mean said that i should really watch it and I said, okay, and I kind of forgot about it for a minute, and then I went back, and uh, I was watching something else, or looking into something else, and apparently it's the highest rated show that Netflix has ever produced, according to IMDb. It's got a 90, it's got a 9 out of 10 on IMDb, with thousands of ratings which wow that never happened right and that one was a little like okay now i should actually pay attention to this one because the nine out of ten on imdb wow that's because on imdb there's always some you know john smith who has to give a half a star and say oh this is a a pile of doo-doo um you know, with no real reason oh yeah it, no i'm actually somebody's got to do that i'm sure that that is what will ha- i'm actually surprised it didn't happen more frankly because yeah. it's from a video game and that not all gamers are bad i like gamers i'm a gamer when i have time so it's a i'm not speaking about gamers in general but there is a certain subset of gamers that nobody well. likes um <laughs> yeah and they're also the sort who tank imdb ratings for too many women having blue or pink hair pick a reason it's um i'm not i wish i was exaggerating but i'm not <laughs> um the made myself sad though um the yeah so as fun as this is, um, we probably should wrap it up. Just the get the. I don't know how long people how long people expect podcasts <laughs> to be these days. I'm just kind of keeping going, but it's uh, 
it is one of those that since this is the first one we're recording, maybe we should have something of a format. Maybe. Yes. I don't know. Yes. It's, that sounds uh, like a good idea. Yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> um, so where can people find you, Joanne? Oh, people can find me. Uh, my website is uh, filmmakersuccess.com and all one word, filmmakersuccess.com. And I'm pretty much... Uh, on all social media I'm Joanne Film and um, yeah I, I'm always teaching something or other I mon next Monday which will be before this comes out I'm teaching something about distribution and I'm on Clubhouse every week and uh, you know I'm just always trying to get the word out about um, filmmakers making money you know, raising mm -hmm. money, which is, I'm a fundraising specialist, so I teach a lot of fundraising, um, getting the word out about filmmakers raising money to make films. I, mm -hmm. I There's some somebody who has some big following, uh, some indie film, something or other, I don't know. Anyway, um, they one day wrote a tweet that said, if you ever meet anybody who says that they know how you can make money on films, walk the other way they're lying and i nearly wrote something but i didn't mm -hmm. but i would say that you know my way of having filmmakers make money is that we raise the money first and then make mm -hmm. the film um so that as i said you know for me the most important thing is that filmmakers are not going into debt um, to mm -hmm. make films. Uh, so if you're not in debt, then what money comes in is going to you and not, um, you're not there, you know, with those haggard, you know, fear looks because you've got your $50,000 in the hole. Um, I, I often, mm -hmm. when, when I speak to a filmmaker, I say, uh, so, um, how much do you owe? You know, and they'll tell me the number. And I say, is anybody going to break your legs over it? And they'll say, no. I'm like, okay, well, good. But those things have happened, you know. So, oh, yeah. No, like people, it's... I just don't want filmmakers getting themselves into trouble financially so that they can live to tell the tale and make another movie. To me, that's that's the purpose. That's the point. I could not agree more. And uh, I think we're going to leave it there um but thank you guys for checking out i think i am going to release this one first the first episode of the currently titled movie moolah podcast um please subscribe on youtube the uh and the youtube is just the gorilla rep media youtube where you're watching it hit the note smash that notification button as i believe what the kids are saying these days and uh <laughs> Also, uh, check out my Patreon. Link will be either in the down there part or maybe over here. I don't know. I haven't made the template yet. Um, so, yeah. Thank you <laughs> so much. This is great fun. Thank you, Ben. Talk to you soon.